Hello my Hegelians, grab your bagel and juice and let's discuss a little bit of Nietzsche. So I wanted to start out by reading something that I've never read so you and I will read this for the first time. This is from The Wanderer and His Shadow, Aphorism 84. Apparently, this is the first presentation of the death of God in Nietzsche's writings. The Prisoners, it's called. One morning, the prisoners entered the workyard. The warder was missing. Some of them started working straight away, as was their nature. Others stood idle and looked around defiantly. Then one stepped forward and said loudly, Work as much as you like or do nothing, it is all one. Your secret designs have come to light. The prison warder has been eavesdropping on you and in the next few days intends to pass a fearful judgment upon you. You know him, he is harsh and vindictive. But now pay heed, you have mistaken me. I am not what I seem, but much more. I am the son of the prison warder, and I mean everything to him. I can save you. I will save you. But note well, only those of you who believe me that I am the son of the prison warder. The rest may enjoy the fruit of their unbelief. Well now, said one of the older prisoners after a brief silence. What can it matter to you if we believe you or do not believe you? If you are really his son and can do what you say, then put in a good word for all of us. It would be really good of you if you did so, but leave aside this talk of belief and unbelief. And a younger man interposed. I don't believe him. It's only an idea he's got into his head. I bet that in a week's time, we shall find ourselves here just like today and that the prison, the prison warden knows nothing. And if he did know something, he knows it no longer, said the last of the prisoners who had only just come into the yard. The prison warder has just suddenly died Hala, cried several together. Hala, son, son, what does the will say? Are we perhaps now your prisoners? I have told you. He whom they addressed responded quietly. I will set free everyone who believes in me, as surely as my father still lives. The prisoners did not laugh, but shrugged their shoulders and left him standing. So Nietzsche was primarily preoccupied with his belief that religion was soon becoming a value and priority of the past. He felt that the death of God was imminent and he was really worried that everyone would fall into despair because of this. 
Now Nietzsche really had sort of a an admiration in a sense, if not emotional, but logically speaking, of religion. He felt as if it was a good solution, a certain perfect in its in the fact of its effectiveness solution and remedy to the despair the despair that every human being might feel with the net taken out from under them because of the suffering and the pain of life he was really preoccupied as well with the potential results of nihilism because one might see as a consequence of nihilism sort of the understanding that life isn't necessarily worth living and that everything that we do is in vain. And Nietzsche said that human beings didn't necessarily mind suffering or in other words, suffering wasn't the problem. He said the lack of a meaning and reason behind suffering was the problem. And so Christianity in particular gave people that. Christianity gives people certainty, a blueprint for life, and a meaning behind everything. I was just recently listening to Michaela Peterson's podcast. I was watching it on YouTube and she had a guest speaker who is a devout Catholic. And she was saying that, you know, she has recently found God in a meaningful sense. And that, you know, even though you know, maybe she had a few days of, of maybe stepping just a bit back from it to just, you know, test it out, make sure that 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 was really, you know, a sincere path for her, that she felt more at peace when she was committing completely to God. And, and so was suggesting that you know, the choice of religion, the choice of Christianity, specifically since both Nietzsche and Michaela are focusing on Christianity, that particular religion, um, that it's a way to be happy in this world. It's a way to get through the world um, and not fall into suicidal ideation. Uh, although Michaela didn't mention that. Uh, Nietzsche more mentions that. Um, and Nietzsche agrees. Nietzsche says that this is perfect. But he sees that it's problematic because then it is really an escape. And then you become non-thinking because you sort of let, you know, this sort of external reality do your thinking for you. And then you kind of center at least part of your world around the non-logical ideas of guilt and sin. And so what Nietzsche wanted to do was he wanted to create with all of his ideas, with the ubermensch, with his, 
eternal return he wanted to create a way to be affirmative of life you know and he had these ideas that it was better to be powerful than weak there are two kinds of cheerfulness one is a forced positivity that's embedded in fantasy and and idols and ideals and the other one which is preferred is a cheerfulness in the face of absurdity um you can think of sort of a person who's kind of confident and light-hearted and just sees the world as play and you know finds maybe not humor but a cheerfulness that is sort of detached from suffering but that also overlays the suffering if that makes sense um so so you know think of someone who just can't be can't be knocked down you know can't be offended can't be pushed down can't be made necessarily to be vulnerable in a sense and that's really what he wanted for people that was sort of the noble choice and he really did have an aristocratic sort of leaning and tendency to his advice uh he speaks a lot about art and music you know he was a bit obsessed with richard wagner and was in love with his wife and you know that relationship sort of fell away after a while but um he just felt that music and art um didn't doesn't rely on sort of this false attachment to reality but is in the realm of representation and indulgence in the dionysian um i don't know if i'm saying that right dionysian maybe um dionysian um inclination to the dark chaotic mystical primal self and he's a classicist as well you know he was very learned in greek and latin and classical greek drama and literature and philosophy and so you know he relies a lot on you know his particular understanding of the tragic with the tragic really meant um and then also opposing a- apollo you know in the light and the order and the reason with um dionysus and he said he was a, a dionysian disciple basically he'd rather be a satyr than a saint nietzsche said and he had this idea of you know life being meaningful in rare and frequent but intense instances so he said that 
beauty unveils itself for us only once. And this kind of beauty is... This is the kind of beauty that you are seduced into remembering and recalling and being obsessed with singularly, which is why he says that, that it's unveiled only once. So it doesn't mean literally, he just means for the time span that that unveiling and the memory surrounding that unveiling is, you know, occupying your mind, it doesn't really get superimposed with another, you know? you. You move on, but you don't necessarily, um, you know, have multiple kind of memories about this instance. And, and you know, I've experienced this for sure. I mean, I think most people have. Life isn't just, you know, multiple unveilings of beauty. But this beauty is sort of an ecstasy. It's sort of a deep, meaningful intimacy where you can detach yourself from the sufferings and the worries and the anxiety and the nausea of the world. And you really feel that in that instance, you've encountered something worthwhile, something that makes life worth living. And a lot of times people can be kind of wrapped up in the remembrance of this and wanting to experience it again but Nietzsche didn't necessarily find that problematic unless it kept you from sort of present action um you know so so that's kind of what I'm getting at so far you know, he wants you to say yes to life. And in this way, Nietzsche is very positive. And again, he is worried about nihilism and he is not um, monolithically critical about religion either. He actually comes up with a replacement for religion and sort of metaphysical values that in a way is actually religious and metaphysical in itself. And it's the idea of the eternal return. And I'm gonna see if I can find the actual passage. And um, read it because I think that it is quite literary and compelling. Okay, so in the gay science, Aphorism 341, he says, What if some day or night a demon were to steal into your loneliness, loneliest loneliness, and say to you, This life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once again and innumerable times again, and there will be nothing new in it. But every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unspeakably small or great in your life must return to you. All in the same succession and sequence, even this spider and this moonlight between the trees, and even this moment and I myself. The eternal hourglass of existence is turned over and over again and you with it, speck of dust. 
Would you not, Nietzsche says. Throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke this? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him, you are a god, and never have I heard anything more divine? If this thought gained power over you, as you are, it would transform and possibly crush you. The question in each and everything, do you want this again and innumerable times again? would lie on your actions as the heaviest weight? Or how well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life to long for nothing more fervently than for this ultimate eternal confirmation and seal? So in a way, this kind of reminds me of reincarnation. It gives, you know, what Nietzsche said religion was giving but to problematic consequences it gives you sort of well maybe not you know it doesn't necessarily give you an ultimate meaning but it gives you a purpose i guess you know i mean it does require reincarnation but it's not necessarily like you need to be good so you'll go to heaven and have a completely different life or you know, you need to be reincarnated again and again so that you will learn your lessons and finally meet nirvana. So it's neither God nor nirvana. It is rather sort of a, an impetus or a boundary for yourself. Um, something you can recall. So you're going to the shopping center today to window shop. Is that something? Yeah, I mean, as soon as you do it, you're embedding it in your life for eternity. You're going to do it again and again and again. Or you're going to the job that you don't like. That day is going to be there for eternity, and you're going to have to re-experience it again and again and again. So, in a sense, it could prompt someone into taking more risks, really valuing every moment of their life because they want to hurry up and, and rack up these moments and experiences that they can desire to relive again and again. So it's, you know, it's something. It's, it could be something to live by, you know? Of course, you know, this takes belief. I mean, is there a, really a demon? Is there really the science behind it? I mean, again, that cosmology takes faith. But, you know, I think that, you know, someone said to me recently that sometimes you need a little untruth to get by. And it seems like there is this chosen or intentional faith that I think Camus also would agree with. And even, even existentialism and Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir who say that, you know, life doesn't have meaning, but you create meaning. We are meaning makers. 
you know, but Nietzsche kind of takes it a step farther and kind of helps us a little bit. So, okay, well, we're, we're meaning makers. We can make meaning. I mean, maybe we don't want to do that work. Maybe that's just exhausting. Um, that doesn't really give us a purpose or a reason or a motivation behind it. But Nietzsche does. He says, you, you should just choose to believe this. And I think it's really fascinating. Well, this is when we take our break. So I'll be back with more of my initial thoughts on Nietzsche. Hello, Hegelians. So we're back. So I just wanted to talk about a little more um, technically about what I've read and talk about the sort of trajectory of Nietzsche's works. So Nietzsche, like Camus, his works can be divided up into three stages. So the early stage, which contains the birth of tragedy. And then, and that's um, from 1872 through six. And then you have the middle stage, which is the late 70s to the mid 80s. And you have four books in there. You have Human, All Too Human, Daybreak, Thoughts on the Prejudices of Morality, and my, uh, my copy is called The Dawn of the Day. Um, and then you have The Gay Science, which I'm currently trying to get through. And then Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which I have gone halfway through. <laughs> and... Um, gave up, but I'm about to try again. I remember finding it in randomly in a used bookstore in Ireland, in Wexford, Ireland, and I was like, "Oh, I need to read some philosophy." This was this was much before my intentional decision to pick philosophy up and try to to get as familiar and read as much as I can in Western philosophy, which I've been doing since March of this year and then you have oh and then let's see yes i said the gay science okay um and then you have the late period which is basically the mid to late 80s and there's a lot of books in here beyond good and evil which is the only book of nietzsche that i've read I read part of it with a philosophy group on meetup.com. It was really interesting. Um, I got frustrated with that group because I felt as if people were not being polite and letting everyone speak, but you know, that's just, that's just me. I don't like to interrupt. I just want everyone to be kind of reasonable um, and speak. So, you know, and I'm gonna talk about in a minute the difficulty of reading Nietzsche and what my recommendation would be. Um, so, so yes, you have Beyond Good and Evil, you have On the Genealogy of Morality, which I am also about to read, then you have Twilight of the Idols, then you have The Antichrist, Curse on Christianity, and then Echo Homo, or How One Becomes What One Is. And, 
And that's really, I mean, obviously there are some unpublished notebooks and, and different things like that. And then there's some other, you know, some other works within there, like I didn't mention. The Wanderer in His Shadow, um, published in 1880. But, you know, so there's, there's if you, if you want to start reading Nietzsche, you have your work cut out for you. And this is what I would say about Nietzsche, is that, for me at least, there is, as much as his ideas apart, you know, his ideas extracted from his writings are inspirational and compelling and even heartbreaking, but also just beautiful and hopeful, full of hope and affirmation. When you are reading Nietzsche, if you're trying to read it from cover to cover, you know, at a, a pace that you might read other works at. I don't know, for myself, I feel a weight. For me, it's really hard. Like, I just, it's not hard to understand. Nietzsche is actually, you know, superficially one of the most accessible philosophers out there. Um, you might feel like you're missing context, but um, but you will be able to, to understand, you know, every line. Probably needing to look a few references up, but, um, you know, accessible. So that's not it. It's the emotional weight. It's his passion. It's his intensity. It's his sort of unfiltered pushiness. I remember when I was reading... Thus spoke Zarathustra. I just, I kind of labeled him as a grumpy cat. And I'm not even sure I think that anymore, although that's still partly true for me. Um, it's just so difficult. And I think part of it is that, well, at least in all the books that I have, that I have looked at so far, um, Basically, and I'm just trying to look through, yes, that one as well. It just seems as if what he is writing and what he is giving to the public is basically his journals and his notebooks anyway. It's because it's like in one of the paragraphs he says, and today, this is what I thought. And I just I just think, is this, you know, this is kind of his, and they seem like his aphorisms seem a bit unconnected to each other. They're just sort of his random observations and thoughts on life. And so, so in a way, they really require slow reading. And that might have even been his purpose because he talks quite a bit about needing to reflect and the time that it takes to transform into this sort of noble person that's beyond beyond humans and so maybe he has those those you know that white space in his works so to speak um because he wants us to slow down so you know i am doing the opposite of what i'm advising people to do. I'm trying to devote this month of October to Nietzsche. I'm having a guest come on. Um, and that, that's actually, that guest wanted to talk about on the genealogy of morals, thus spoke Zarathustra and the gay science. So, 
you know, I'm reading in preparation for that. I don't know how much I will really get finished just because I said it takes so much out of you reading this emotionally. It takes so much out of you emotionally. And so what I would do is, and I was talking to someone, someone who came on my live stream saying that, you know, he was reading the gay science and he can really only read 10 pages at a time. And I mean, again, even 10 pages of Nietzsche is a lot at a time, I think. Because I think that, you know, each aphorism is something to kind of reflect on. Kind of like the the sutras of the Dhammapada, for instance, or the yoga sutras. You know, just taking one, which is, you know, lines to a paragraph long, and reading it, rereading it, reading it three times, taking notes on it, journaling, thinking about it. Because Nietzsche is really helpful, I think, for those of us who have maybe had traumatized pasts or childhoods or been socialized to be sort of subservient and polite. Because Nietzsche could be said to, um, to give you back your power, to give you back your confidence. A lot of times I think people, not successful people, but the rest of us, we hold back on moving forward and pushing through obstacles and people, etc., because we are so empathetic and we are so compassionate and we are so kind and we just want to be good and mindful and helpful. And maybe that is what the world needs. And maybe that's valuable in itself, you know, who cares about being successful? But I think it can also weigh one down and garner a sort of resentfulness, even if we're trying to repress that. So for Nietzsche, I think that we can read him. And for those of us who lack, you know, a certain empowerment in our lives, maybe we can find that in Nietzsche. I mean, of course, there's a lot in Nietzsche that is fantastical and sort of problematic and unnecessary. I'm thinking sometimes when he is talking about gender and women, and he had an interesting romantic history and past as well. He seemed to always be smitten with women who were sort of taken um, either partially or completely in marriage or, you know, something like that. Um, I think one of the, one of his loves, I'm trying to find her name, Lou Salome, I think her name was, um, he was friends with her husband and he fell in love with her, or maybe it wasn't her husband, maybe it was just another lover, I don't remember, I really need to read a biography on Nietzsche, honestly. And then again, Wagner's wife. And he was rejected and it kind of shook him to the core, um, actually. And then he wrote, thus spoke Zarathustra afterwards, after one of those events. Um, so that's what I would say. And I guess the last thing that I would say is, um, Well, I guess there's two more ideas I want to maybe just briefly touch on before I mention my last sort of suggestion. So he felt that it was really important to live well, which again kind of harkens back to his aristocratic upbringing and kind of 
but I'm not sure if it's his upbringing, but you know, and he was able to travel and go on retreat and things like that, even, even though it wasn't really working. Um, so, but living well is important. He would often have these analogies saying that those who are oppressing themselves or those who are weak um, or falling into despair just don't have a good stomach. They're not like digesting life properly. And also he said, the second thing is, he said that life is basically an experiment and it should be. And that makes a lot of sense to me because it kind of feel, it feels like that. And then he also said sick, we need to normalize sickness. Sickness is a normal state and we have to constantly work toward good health. All right, so the last thing that I would say, if you want to get into Nietzsche, if you are frustrated like I am, I honestly don't know. I'm surprised I got through Beyond Good and Evil, honestly, um, because the, the gay science is, is difficult for me. Um, but I'm starting in book two, so I don't know if that matters. I'm gonna try to pick it up again tonight. So there's the series that I think I've been talking about on my YouTube for a while because I keep kind of trying them out and they're written by different authors but Simon Crichtley is the series editor he's a professor of philosophy at the New School in New York City and he has this series called How to Read how to read Nietzsche, how to read Sartre, how to read Kierkegaard, how to read Heidegger, how to read Wittgenstein, and so on. And so I picked up the How to Read Nietzsche and read it in just under a week. And it is the most beautiful work. It is the most beautiful work, I would even say, almost a philosophy that I've read. And I'm going to have to actually find more works by this author. So the author is Keith Ansel Pearson, who is a professor of philosophy and the director of graduate research at the University of Warwick, which I don't know where that is. Um, but the way he, I mean, I, I came to tears almost, <laughs> you know, while reading this. It made me, it struck me to my core the way that he was writing. And by far, out of all of the books in the how-to series that I've read, this How to Read Nietzsche is my favorite. It's one that I want to read again, actually, and again, because I just thought it was so beautiful and so meaningful and so helpful. And I put, I put in my Goodreads review that I almost liked it better than Nietzsche himself, which is, I suppose, not something to, to publicize often, but it's the truth. And I'll have to just kind of slowly warm up to the actual Nietzsche. But this how-to series has actual excerpts in each chapter from different works, and it goes mostly chronologically, or it does go chronologically. And I just think it's wonderful. So I would say, you know, whether you're a beginner or not in Nietzsche, this how to read Nietzsche, and I think Pearson also has, I think he is, you know, basically a, a scholar of Nietzsche and he has various books on him. But this How to Read is 116 pages. Still go through it, you know, at a moderate pace, I would say. 
and I took I took copious notes on it. I just think it's it's a gem, and it'll get you talking about Nietzsche and all his ideas. Whereas I think that it would take years and years and years to to properly go through all of Nietzsche's works, or even the core of Nietzsche's works, and to really grasp what Pearson summarizes for us. All right, Hegelians, thank you so much for listening. Again, This I'm just starting out on my journey. It hasn't even been a year yet. I'm just trying to go through you know, as many works as I can in different fashions and talking about them to people, having conversations, learning from people, um, you know, taking notes, having guests on my podcast, you know, and I think that's the way to go. I think that, you know, you have to be in conversation and that's the fun thing about philosophy as well. You know, you take a book of Nietzsche uh, or Zizek out to a coffee shop, someone will strike up a conversation with you, you know, because people who are reading philosophy are excited about philosophy. And so it's a good, it's a good sort of community to get into as well. So, you know, I would say find me on my Instagram, find me on my YouTube, join my study with me sessions if you'd like, because there are some brilliant people that show up and, you know, you can ask questions about what you're reading. We all share what we're reading. Sometimes there's just a little conversation here and there about uh, different philosophers or ideas. And it's, it's a really good situation, I think. And also, if you want to be a guest on my podcast, I leave it up to you what to talk about, what philosopher, what, um, you know, philosopher's work that you want to focus on. And, you know, I will or we'll both read up on the works and then in about a month, we can come together and have you know, an hour together just kind of talking about wherever the conversation takes us. So I'd love to have you on. I'd love to meet you, um, learn from you. So, so let me know, send me a message on Instagram if that's what you want to do. And I will probably be spending a few weeks on Nietzsche before I have my guest on. So Hopefully next time we meet, I'll have some additional thoughts. Have a lovely day. Have a lovely morning. Have a lovely evening. And keep reading.